in the Gospel of John, still after a considerable pause of several weeks, a pause in our study of the Gospel of John, today we pick back up with that journey at chapter 18, chapter 18. This chapter begins the final section of John's record of Jesus' divine identity and as well the final section of John's record of the Lord's earthly ministry. But since it has been a while, let's do a very brief overview of the entire book. First, we studied what is called the prologue. That was in chapter 1, verses 1 through 18, where the case is clearly articulated that Jesus is God. And then after that, all the way through chapter 12, we found Jesus' witness in the world and as well his ministry among believers in those 12 chapters. And along the way, we saw examples of the intensifying conflict with the religious leaders. And then finally, in chapters 13 through 17, we went through the Lord's final teaching to the 11 disciples, starting in the upper room where they were observing their last Passover meal together on the night before the crucifixion, and then the teaching that continued after they left the upper room and made their way across the city of Jerusalem to the Kidron Valley. That is a valley that separates the city of Jerusalem from a hill that's to the east of the city, a hill called the Mount of Olives. When they arrived at that valley on the east side of the city, Jesus and the 11 disciples would have descended down into the ravine about 200 feet to the bottom where they would have come to a brook, a stream. This is the Kidron Brook. It is a stream that is dry much of the year, but during a rainy season, certainly water would flow in that stream and the water would run roughly south or southeast all the way to the Dead Sea. It was likely there at the edge of that stream, that brook, that Jesus in John chapter 17 stopped and prayed. As we saw there in John 17, he prayed first for himself. And then he went on to pray for those 11 remaining disciples. And then he prayed for all believers, including us, all believers who would come in the future. Now we're at chapter 18. And in chapter 18, with that prayer completed, we find Jesus and the disciples crossing over the little brook and then ascending up to the Mount of Olives. Somewhere there on that hill, Jesus and the men then entered a garden. Now, it is not named here in the Gospel of John, but in the Synoptic Gospels, that's what we call Matthew, Mark, and Luke, because much of what they cover in each of their books is very similar. All of that different than the Gospel of John, though. In the Synoptic Gospels, we do find that the garden was called Gethsemane. The word Gethsemane means oil press. Now, just a comment, though, about the Synoptic Gospels and the differences that exists between them and the Gospel of John. John, we are finding, both omits and adds details as compared to Matthew, Mark, and Luke. However, that does not at all mean that John's different emphasis, we could call it, contradicts the picture of Christ that we find in the Synoptic Gospels. Not at all. Instead, John supplements that picture. 
So let's continue now with our study in the scene in the Garden of Gethsemane. We're going to be today looking at chapters, uh, chapter 18, verses 1 through 11, 1 through 11. Now there are four elements in the unfolding of this unusual scene on that night before Jesus' death, this scene in the garden. So let's note those four elements together. Here's element number one. We'll call it the shameful betrayal. The shameful betrayal. Verse 1 begins this way. When Jesus had spoken these words, and that phrase, these words, is referring to all that teaching that I mentioned, all the teaching that Jesus had been doing on the last night before his death, starting with the teaching in the upper room and then the teaching that continued while they walked across Jerusalem. All of that, the final teaching time with the 11 remaining disciples was done. And now we find them crossing the brook at the bottom of the Kidron Valley. Verse 1 continues, he went forth with his disciples over the ravine of the Kidron where there was a garden in which he entered with his disciples. As they crossed the brook and then ascended the hill, the Mount of Olives, they came to an olive grove. It's here translated garden, but the idea is an olive grove. Note that John specifically says that Jesus and his disciples entered it. Later on, we're going to see that John says that Jesus went forth or went out. You put those two verbs together, entered and went out, and we are able to conclude that this garden was an enclosed area, like a walled section of the Mount of Olives, a walled enclosure. But something far more important about that location is this. Judas knew where it was. Verse 2. Now Judas also, who was betraying him, knew the place. For Jesus had often met there with his disciples. In other words, Jesus had often gone to that little enclosed area, that garden, to fellowship with his disciples. That's something attested in Luke. Luke chapter 22, verse 39 says this, And Jesus came out and proceeded, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples followed him. So Jesus and his disciples went there frequently. But remember, on this night, Judas was not with this group. There's supposed to be 12 disciples, but there are only 11. Why? Well, we saw that back in John chapter 13. A point came that night when they were observing the Passover meal together in the upper room. A point came when Jesus sent Judas out of that room. Here is that moment. It's back in John chapter 13, verse 27. After the morsel, and that's a way of saying they'd just eaten some of the bread for the part of the Passover meal. After that, Satan then entered him. Therefore, Jesus said to him, to Judas, what you do, do quickly. And Judas got up and left the room. And the reason was he went to make arrangements that would result in the betrayal of Jesus to the authorities. And Jesus knew what those plans included. He knew that Judas would need to lead the authorities to find Jesus, to be wherever Jesus was that night. And that's why Jesus took the remaining 11 to Gethsemane. 
He was making sure he was in a place where Judas would likely seek him. That tells us something, does it not? That Jesus was not concerned about being arrested. I mean, in his humanity, he felt the pressure of that and the fear of that and the burden of all that, for sure. But he was not seeking to avoid it. Instead, the text here lets us understand that he went out of his way to make himself available so that the betrayal would happen. So Judas knew where, like, where Jesus would likely be. And you know, that even that fact just shows the hardness of Judas's heart, that he would end up betraying Jesus in the very place that he had been on several occasions with the Lord to fellowship with the Lord. And this garden, along with the timing, made for ideal circumstances to finally arrest Jesus. Think about it. In this small enclosed area, Jesus, Judas could bring the arresting officers right up to Jesus. And it was at night. Plus, the location was away from the city itself across that valley. And so they would be removed from the crowds that might see what was happening and rise up to protect Jesus because Jesus enjoyed a level of popularity with the people. So all of that made for the perfect setting to finally arrest Jesus. Just remember what we saw earlier in John. There had been other attempts to pull this off. Attempts by the religious leaders to apprehend Jesus. But all of his enemies' previous attempts to seize him were unsuccessful. And that's because of a little phrase that John included along the way. Every time something like this happened, John would include this little statement, because his hour had not come. That is why they couldn't arrest Jesus on those other occasions. It wasn't time yet. It wasn't the timing and God's sovereign plan for it to happen. But now, in the outworking of God's eternal plan, the time had come for Jesus to willingly offer up his life to pay for the sins of his people. So what we find here is the Lord in complete control that night, even arranging the place and the time of this shameful betrayal. Note that in verse 3, Judas was not alone. He was supported by a pretty impressive force of armed men. It says in verse 3, Judas then, having received the Roman cohort and officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, came there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Now, only here in John's gospel do we find that there was this detachment of Roman soldiers included in the group that night that went to arrest Jesus. Here, this detachment is called a cohort. Now, a full Roman cohort was quite large. It would be anywhere from 600 to 1,000 men and sometimes would even include 200 or so cavalry soldiers. And that large group would be led by a commander called a tribune, but the Greek language here allows that that night, this was likely not a full cohort. It was instead a smaller unit of probably something like 60 to 100 men. Of course, think about it, that's still a pretty large group to arrest one man. But as noted, Jesus was popular among the people. 
And so they didn't want to risk some sort of mob uprising. That's exactly what the Jewish leaders were always in fear of happening along the way. That's why we find statements like this in Matthew 26, verses 4 and 5. They plotted together to deceive Jesus, to seize Jesus by stealth and kill him. But they were saying, not during the festival, otherwise a riot might occur among the people. That's what they were always concerned about, the people. And during Passover, Jerusalem was full of people. It was teeming with people. So Jesus, Judas led this group through the darkness to a place where he thought it would be possible to find Jesus and arrest him in relative privacy. Now it says that some of the officers, the officials from the chief priests and Pharisees were also in this group. The chief priests and Pharisees, those were the religious Jewish leaders. And some from this group usually functioned as what we would call the temple police to keep control of the temple. So these religious individuals that night, they would have been considered the primary arresting officers and not the Romans. The Romans were there to back them up and to put down any uprising to make sure it took place. But these Jewish leaders, these temple police, would be the primary arresting officers. That's why we will find later that they did not take Jesus first to a Roman court. They took him to the Jewish authorities. Now, the writer, John, was an eyewitness to all this, and that explains the mention sometimes of minor details, seemingly minor details, like the fact that they had lanterns and torches. Now, just so you'll know, Passover, which was going on that week, and it was leading up to the, to the day, Passover, Passover was always celebrated when there was a full moon. And that means there was light that night. They didn't necessarily need the lanterns and torches to find Jesus, but they didn't understand. They're thinking he may attempt to flee. They may have to rummage around in the the mountainside, the dark mountainside, to try to find him. So they brought lanterns and torches, and notice that they also brought weapons. Again, they totally misunderstood Jesus' messianic mission. They were always concerned with over the fact that he was some sort of political leader or military leader who was going to cause the people to rise up and take over the government. So they brought weapons. Plus, something else was on their mind. By this time, they had come to be forced to acknowledge, really, that Jesus had some kind of supernatural power. You'll remember, Jesus Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead called him out of the grave in the nearby town of Bethany that was not too far from the Mount of Olives. They all knew that. They couldn't deny that it happened. Here's some of the comments we studied earlier in John about that, John chapter 12. Here's verses 9 through 11. The large crowd of Jews came not for Jesus' sake only, but that they might also see Lazarus. I mean, word is spread that Lazarus, whom they knew had died, was walking around. They wanted to see him. Verse 10, but the chief priest planned to put Lazarus to death also. In other words, they're thinking, we've got to kill him again to get rid of him. Why? Verse 11, because on account of him, Lazarus, many of the Jews were going away and were believing in Jesus. Later on, verse 17 of John 12, so the people who were with Jesus when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to testify about Jesus. 
For this reason, also the people went and met him because they heard that he had performed this sign. Verse 19 goes on to say that the Pharisees were concerned about it, discussing amongst themselves about their their inability to apprehend Jesus. And now that this had happened, here's what the Pharisees said. From their observation, verse 19, the whole world has gone after him, after Jesus. So they had this problem on their hand. Jesus Evidently, is some sort of military or political leader going to take over the government. Evidently, he has some sort of supernatural power. So all of that generated this fear in the group that night that arresting Jesus was not going to be easy. So a large group, I mean, not a full cohort, but, but 50 to 100 men armed came that night to arrest Jesus and to do it as quickly as possible. They needed to quickly find him. They need to quickly bring him into custody. They need to to rush him then to appear before the Sanhedrin, which would mean they would have to quickly convene the Sanhedrin and then somehow quickly get an audience with Pontius Pilate the next morning in hopes that Pilate would approve the death sentence. Pilate would have to approve that quickly to get all that done so Jesus could be put to death before Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So here Judas was, leading this group to Gethsemane where he knew Jesus would be waiting. And that's what he found, Jesus calmly waiting for their arrival. By the way, John doesn't record the detail of Judas kissing Jesus. We know from the synoptics that that happened, that somewhere along in this point here of this scene, Judas kissed Jesus. A kiss was the pre-planned signal by which Judas would point out Jesus. Here's how Mark puts it, Mark chapter 14, verses 40 and 45. Now he who was betraying Jesus had given them a signal saying, Whomever I kiss, he's the one. Seize him and lead him away under guard. And then verse 45 of Mark 14 tells us how it happened. It said, Judas immediately went to Jesus saying, Rabbi, and kissed him. What a sad moment. I mean, think about the purpose of a kiss, especially in their culture. A kiss was a recognized gesture of respect. A kiss was a recognized moment of affection for an intimate friend. A kiss would even mean a sign of reverence towards someone. All of that just adds together to say that this betrayal was truly a despicable, shameful act. Then we come to the second element of the unfolding scene here. Number two, the caring shepherd. We see in verse 4 that Jesus, like I said, went out to meet them. He had no intention of hiding, no intention of running away, verse 4 says. So Jesus, knowing all the things that were coming upon him, went forth. Now, all four Gospels do present this fact, and that is Jesus knowing what would happen. The Lord was not just this pathetic, scared, fearful martyr. His death didn't happen because everything went awry. His plans went wrong for some reason, horribly wrong. He was not just some sort of unwilling victim. No, It was all going according to the eternal divine plan and will of God. 
Later on, on the day of Pentecost, you know, Peter's going to preach that amazing sermon in Acts chapter 2. And here's one of his statements that day, Acts chapter 2, verse 23. He tells the Jews that Jesus was delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. And that is so important to understand. Jesus was always in absolute control of all the events of his life. And that controlled... uh, That control extended even to the circumstances surrounding his arrest and then his death. So basically what we find here is Jesus taking charge of the situation that night. And again, I already mentioned to you the verb went forth means to go out. He intentionally went out of this garden area to meet the group. And upon meeting them, we find that Jesus was very concerned about something. And it wasn't his own safety. Verse 4. And he said to them, whom do you seek? Verse 5, they answered him, Jesus the Nazarene. Now, why did Jesus ask that question? He wanted them to clearly state out loud their official orders, that they had come for him and not ultimately for anyone else. So Jesus answered, verse 5, he said to them, I am. The pronoun he is not actually in the Greek text. He simply said, I am. And that means Jesus answers as he had done before on several occasions. Here's just one example that we studied back in John 8, verse 58. John 8, 58, Jesus said to them, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. So that night when Jesus answered this way, he was taking for himself the name of God. It goes all the way back to Exodus chapter 3 when Moses was standing before that burning bush and he wanted to know to whom he was speaking, who was sending him back to Egypt. Exodus 3.14 says, God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, thus you will say to the sons of Israel, I am has sent me to you. That's his name. He's the eternal God, the eternal ever present tense God. And Jesus took that name upon himself again that night. Now John, right there at verse 5, adds this parenthetical comment. And Judas also, who was betraying him, was standing with them. In other words, John wanted to make clear that we haven't forgotten that Judas was not just present, but he was going to experience the same thing that everybody else was about to experience in verse 6. Let's read it. So when he said to them, I am, they drew back and fell to the ground. The whole group, what power this is. I mean, all Jesus had to do was speak his name, the very name of God, and his enemies were rendered helpless in that moment. Even the soldiers, these experienced, battle-scarred soldiers, all just fell to the ground. What a sight. I mean, forget arresting Jesus. They can't even stand up in front of him. Again, the only reason they could ever seize Jesus was that he, Jesus, went out willingly to them. He went willingly with them. He had the power to escape, but he came to die. So he didn't draw upon that power. 
Well, you can sort of visualize the scene, what happened. Now all of them picking themselves up off the ground, and Jesus repeated the question in verse 7. Therefore he again asked them, Whom do you seek? And again they shared with him their specific orders. They said, Jesus, the Nazarene, or Jesus of Nazareth. So look back at that. Twice Jesus made his captor state that their orders were only to arrest him. Why? Jesus, Jesus was looking out for those 11 disciples. This was a protection for them. Before consenting to go with them, he was ensuring that his followers would not be harmed. That was not God's will for them. And he did it by forcing the group to acknowledge that they had no authority to arrest the others. And then he ensured that that was, that was his point. He makes it clear, verse 8. Jesus answered, I told you that I am, so if you seek me, let these go their way. What a caring shepherd he was even that night. And that demand was even a fulfillment of what he had already said earlier, verse 9. The comment by John is, this was to fulfill the word which he spoke. Of those whom you have given me, I lost not one. We saw that back in John chapter 6, verse 39. John 6, 39 says, This is the will of him who sent me. This is the will of the Father, Jesus says, that of all that he has given me, I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. Nothing was going to thwart God's plan for those 11 disciples. And then in chapter 10, verse 28, And I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. In no way was Jesus not in control of all of this. And so he confirms that, but he's also determined that these men would not be taken. The act of a caring shepherd, one who loved and sought to protect his sheep. And that brings us to the third element, the misdirected zeal. The misdirected zeal. Again, the scene is unfolding as we read it here that night in the garden. Keep in mind that Jesus, in control, knew why he was there. He knew why he was on earth. John 12, verse 27 gives it to us in a summary. Christ said there, for this purpose I came to this hour. He also knew how it was going to be accomplished. Through his own voluntary substitutionary death, he knew all of that. But the disciples always were confused about that. They were struggling with it all along the way. Anytime Jesus would mention something like this, they had trouble understanding it. And that becomes very apparent in what happened next in the garden that night. I'm going to fill in a little bit with Luke's account. Here's what Luke adds to the story. Luke 22, verse 49. When those who were around him, who were around Jesus, in other words, the disciples, when they saw what was going to happen, they said to Jesus, Lord, Shall we strike with the sword? Well, evidently, Simon Peter did not wait to get an answer from the Lord. Impulsively, he charges to the Lord's defense. Verse 10, Simon Peter then, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's slave and cut off his right ear, and the slave's name was Malchus. Now, this incident is reported in the Synoptic Gospels, but only John names Simon Peter as the one doing it. 
Only John gives us the name of the slave whose ear was cut off by the sword. You need to know the term for sword here is not what you may be imagining. It wasn't the long sort of battle sword. It's a word that means a short dagger type weapon, which is something I find interesting. Peter had a sword on him, a dagger. Today, we would say he was packing a piece. Of course, under Jesus' supervision, I'm sure that he had a concealed carry permit for this and everything was legal. In any case, he drew his dagger. He was not going to allow Jesus to be arrested. Even if he had to kill as many of these soldiers as he could, die trying even. Evidently, Malchus just happened to be the closest one to him. That was his first target, the high priest slave. And this was not a well-aimed swipe, just hoping to cut off his ear. Peter was likely aiming for the slave's head, his throat, and missed. So he only cut off the man's ear. It's John and Luke who both record that it was the slave's right ear that was severed. The point is this. This display of zeal by Peter was totally impulsive. It was totally unnecessary. This zeal was totally misguided. Jesus did not need help from Peter in this way because that approach did not fit with the mission he was on. And that leads to the final element of the story then. Number four, the divine mission. We've seen the shameful betrayal, the caring shepherd, the misdirected zeal, but now a confirmation of the divine mission. In verse 11, we see that the Lord moved immediately to diffuse the situation, even to rebuke Peter. Verse 11 says, So Jesus said to Peter, Put the dagger, put the sword into the sheath. In Luke 22, you find this additional thought, Luke verse 51, that he said it this way, stop, no more of this. And he touched his ear and healed him. By the way, you would think that this second display of Christ's power, I mean, after saying I am and the power of his name knocking them all down, and now Jesus picking up or touching the man's head and, and healing him, that that would surely caused this crowd to say, wait a minute, we shouldn't be doing this. Let's worship him. No, that didn't happen. They were blinded, hardened in their own hearts, in their sin, demonstrating the very truth of what John had written earlier in John 12, verse 37. Here's John's comment in John 12, 37. Though Jesus had performed so many signs before them, yet they were not believing in him. Well, why didn't Jesus support Peter's valiant effort here to stop the arrest? Because of the mission he was on. He didn't come to earth to be a military leader. He didn't come to be a political leader. He didn't come to be a social leader. He didn't come to be an earthly king. Look ahead to verse 36 in the same, our chapter, chapter 18. Look all the way to verse 36. Jesus says this, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would be fighting so that I would not be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not 
of this realm. How clear can Jesus make it? He did not need his followers to fight to protect him. It's all part of God's sovereign plan. The reality is, if he had chosen to, Jesus could have called on God the Father to help. We find that in Matthew 26, verse 53. Jesus says this, Do you think that I cannot appeal to my Father, and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? So the problem, once again, was the disciples not grasping the divine mission that Jesus was on. It was a mission that required his death. And that death is pictured here in verse 11 with a particular metaphor, that of drinking a cup. We heard the ladies sing about it a few moments ago, the cup. Verse 11, the cup which the Father has given me, shall I not drink it? You see, that's how you can summarize what the mission was. Jesus' mission, he came to earth to drink the cup. Now, this term cup is used many times in the Bible as a symbol of divine judgment. I'll give you a couple from the Old Testament. Psalm 11, verse 6. Upon the wicked, God will rain snares, fire and brimstone, and burning wind will be the portion of their cup. Isaiah 51, verse 17. You have drunk from the Lord's hand the cup of his anger. In the New Testament, in the last book of the New Testament, Revelation chapter 14, verse 10, it calls it the cup of his anger. Revelation 16, verse 19, it's called the cup of the wine of his fierce wrath. Now, earlier in the garden, we know from the synoptics that Jesus had prayed an agonizing prayer. Again, the the ladies sang about it. In that agonizing prayer that happened in the garden that night, before this group came to arrest him, Jesus had, in his humanity, had had felt the burden of all of this and had asked the Father that if it was possible that the cup might not be necessary. Matthew 26, 39, he fell on his face and prayed, prayed, saying, My Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. And then that very important ending to his prayer, yet not as I will, but as you will. Now we see the Lord in submission to the Father's will. He is firm, Jesus is, in his commitment to embrace the sovereign, foreordained plan for his death, a plan that would be drinking a cup, not just drinking it, but he would drink the very last dregs, that we call it, of the cup of God's wrathful judgment for the sin of His people, the wrath that we justly deserve. Paul puts it so beautifully this way in 2 Corinthians 5.21. God made Him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. You could substitute the thoughts of the cup here in that. God made him, the son, the perfect eternal son of God who knew no sin, to drink the cup on our behalf so that we wouldn't have to drink it, so that we instead could be forgiven and become 
the righteousness of God in him. What a night that was in the Garden of Gethsemane. What a scene. I want to close then with some things that I think we're reminded of as we ponder this scene. Certainly, I was reminded of these while I studied this week. Here's reminder number one, our need for a victorious Savior. Not just a Savior, not just one who loves us, but one who is victorious, one who conquered. Richard Phillips, in his commentary on the Gospel of John, very thoughtfully draws this out and reminds us of this, that this garden that night, the Garden of Gethsemane, it's not the only famous garden in the Bible. There's another garden called the Garden of Eden in Genesis. It was in that garden that something else happened. It was in that garden that mankind fell into sin. When Adam sinned, he plunged all his descendants into sin. So Phillips goes on to say there's an incredible contrast here. There's this contrast between Christ and Adam, and therefore there's a contrast between their respective gardens. In Eden, Adam fell. He was defeated in Gethsemane. And then on at the cross and through being raised from the grave, we see Christ conquering Adam defeated, Christ victorious. So what a great reminder here of the Lord's power in his victory over evil. And that's encouraging to us because we need that kind of help from that kind of Savior, a conquering victorious one. You see, we face spiritual warfare. We're in the battle against Satan, the evil of the world, our own sinful flesh, a spiritual battle. We need the help of a conquering, victorious Savior. Martin Luther understood that. This need for dependence on the victorious Lord in our spiritual conflicts, and he expressed it in that familiar hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. Remember this verse? Luther writes, Did we in our own strength confide? Well, our striving would be losing. We're not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing. Dost ask who that may be? Christ Jesus, it is he. Lord Sabaoth, his name, the Lord of the armies. From age to age the same, and he must win the battle. That's who Christ is, our Savior, but a victorious Savior. I was reminded of my need for that. Second, I was reminded of our need for eternal security. To be protected by the Lord, to be kept by the Lord. And this practical protection of the disciples that night is a great picture of that. It's a great reminder of the most important protection He provides. He guards our commitment to Him. We will never be lost precisely because our Lord keeps us secure whether it's something that is needing to happen on the practical level or something in a spiritual realm we cannot see. The Lord cares for His sheep. He protects them, and we need that so that we can understand that nothing will befell us that will overcome us. That's too much for us to bear. Even if we think about temptation, 
We're constantly being tempted to sin and sometimes failing, we sing in a song. But take to heart the promise in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 13. I think about this verse a lot. 1 Corinthians 10, 13, no temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful and will not allow you to be tempted. It's the same word translated tested as well. Tempted or tested beyond what you're able. But with the temptation will provide the way of escape also so that you will be able to endure it. That night, Christ knew that this was not God's will for the disciples. That would be too much for them. He protected them from that. No testing, no trial will come upon us. That's too much for us to bear because our victorious Savior cares for us and He is keeping us eternally secure. We are weak like those disciples. We're vulnerable, but the Good Shepherd gladly protects us. A third reminder for me was our need for spiritual weapons. Our need for spiritual weapons. We're in a battle. It's just that Peter didn't understand what kind of battle. His foolish attempt to fight that way that night then reminds us of something, that our weapons for our battle, our weapons are not of this world. They're not something that we can create as human beings in order to be victorious. Paul puts it this way in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 3 through 5. For though we walk in the flesh, meaning as human beings, we do not war according to the flesh, according to human techniques and strategies. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. We are destroying speculations. Let me stop there. We're not taking a sword and trying to overtake the government and chop off somebody's ear. Verse 5 says, we are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. And we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. We are in a spiritual battle. We are battling error, false ideologies in this world, heresies. And we're destroying all those false speculations and ideologies and opinions and heresies. And everything lofted up, lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God, the truth of Scripture. We're doing it by taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ with the Word of God. To broaden that out, the weapons that we have been given are spiritual weapons, and they have not changed and never will change. Our weapons are prayer, the Word of God, and our faith. And with those weapons, we can be a part of the Lord's work and take an effective role in the spiritual battle, an effective role in God's redemptive mission. And one final reminder is the reminder of this, our need for vicarious atonement. Atonement means to have our sins paid for, but carried out a certain way, vicariously. Vicarious means someone took our place. This account reminds me of that. We needed someone to take our place and to put it in the words of the text. We need someone to take our place to drink the cup that we deserve to drink. How many cups are there? Really, there's only two and nothing in between. There's the cup of God's blessing 
In Psalm 23, we find that for those who know the Lord and are following Him as their shepherd, our, our cup is overflowing. That's the cup of God's blessing, but it's not the only cup. We've seen there's the cup of God's wrath. Every person who has ever been born is going to drink from one of those two cups. Which one are you going to drink of? For the one who looks to Jesus alone for salvation as their Lord and Savior, that person enjoys the cup of God's blessing forever because Jesus drank the other cup in our place. Our Savior taking our place. And because He drank that cup of wrath, we experience the other cup, the cup of forgiveness instead of divine judgment. But for the one who spurns Jesus as Lord and Savior, the one who refuses His offer of salvation through faith alone, to reject Jesus as your Lord and Savior, that means you will someday drink that cup of just wrath on your sins. You'll drink it yourself and spend eternity under God's judgment. How grateful we are for a Savior who drank the cup on our behalf. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful for this scene, a mysterious scene, a scene that's hard to comprehend in some ways. God, God praying to God. The eternal Son pouring out His heart in His humanity, feeling the pressure, the burden of all that was taking place to die to pay the sins on behalf of His sheep. Lord, the mysterious elements of Him saying His name and people falling down due to the power of it, it's so unusual to us. But we thank You for how it unfolds in the Word of God so that we can understand it. Thank You for all it represents, the reality that we have a victorious Savior and that those who are in Him can be eternally secure, and that we can live for Him in this world and, and, and fight the spiritual battles with the spiritual weapons You've given to us, not human weapons. Thank You that our Savior drank the cup of wrath on our behalf that we could be saved and forgiven. I do pray, Lord, if any of Your sheep are here and they have never come to confess Christ as the Lord and Savior of their life, may You open their hearts to believe today. And may those of us who are following you, may we be mindful of this and be so grateful as we think about, as we ponder what you did on our behalf, drinking the cup of God's wrath. In our Savior's name, amen.